If you have a Bible, um, grab it and go to the first book there, the book of Genesis, and chapter 37. We started chapter 37 last week, verses 1 through 11, as we are uh, launching into the story of Joseph that many of us are familiar with, and we will finish out chapter 37 uh, this morning. Uh, I grew up on some different on some cartoons. Do you remember Roadrunner and Coyote? Remember that cartoon where the, the Roadrunner is always trying to get away from the Coyote, and Coyote always is trying to create some sort of trap or um, always using anvils. I didn't know what an anvil, I don't think I would know what an anvil is except for having watched Roadrunner and Coyote. But you remember that he creates all these traps and what always happens? Uh, Roadrunner gets away and he gets caught or it happens to him or, you know, and miraculously he's always surviving or falling off cliffs and things like that. All of his, his schemes, all of his traps, they don't harm the Roadrunner, but in fact they come back to hurt the coyote uh, in the midst of it. I thought about that because as we look at the story of Joseph, what's amazing is that everything that is meant to harm him, in fact, accomplishes God's greater purpose. I don't think it's as as direct a parallel. Roadrunner never gets hurt, right? But Joseph goes through some pain. But in the midst of all the evil that people are bringing into, all the the coyotes in his life, all the things that they are trying to harm him with, in the midst of all of that, they are actually working for Joseph's good. They are accomplishing God's purpose. And even though he goes through pain, God is doing something amazing in Joseph's life that we slowly watch unfold. So just thinking about sort of that that strange illustration and, and those themes. Here, here's what I think the big idea that we would draw for, here specifically from chapter 37 is this, the downward spiral of hatred for God's people cannot thwart God's plans. The downward spiral of hatred for God's people. I, I want to say it that way because I think it's just sort of we watch as the brothers slowly sink deeper and deeper in their sin. The downward spiral of hatred for God's people cannot thwart, cannot mess up God's plans. Even as Mark read this morning, the words of Jesus are clear that opposition for God's people is inevitable. If Jesus faced persecution, then so will we. Uh, But ultimate triumph is also inevitable. We may be opposed, but we will always be ultimately victorious because of God's sovereign working, whether in this life or in the next. I want to jump right in. So let's let's pick up the narrative in, in, in verse 12. You remember from last week that Joseph is the favorite son of his father, Jacob, or, or Israel, but that the more his father loves him, the more Joseph's brothers hate him. Uh, he gave a bad report about some of his brothers to his father. He's given a special robe by his father. He's told dreams from God that his brother's and his father and his mother, <coughs> excuse me, will bow down before him. And all of this led to their anger and jealousy. It led to hatred from the brothers. So much so that the text says they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. So with all that as background, look at verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. 
So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him but he refused to be comforted and said no I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning thus his father wept for him meanwhile the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh the captain of the guard so we're going to think about this idea, the downward spiral of hatred for God's people cannot thwart God's plans. And as we think about that, I want to think about it underneath three headings. We'll think about first the integrity of Joseph, and we'll think about the wickedness of the brothers, and then we'll think about the sovereignty of God. So the first thing is the integrity of Joseph. The scene begins with Joseph's brothers. They're pasturing the flock near Shechem. While Jacob and Joseph, presumably Benjamin, and the rest of the family are there in the valley of Hebron, we find out. Hebron would have been about 50 miles south of Shechem, so it's a pretty good distance. About 75 miles south of, of Dothan, where they eventually end up. And at some point, Israel, Jacob, wants a report of what's going on with his sons and with his flock. It could be just that it's been a long time since they left. He wants to be sure everything's okay. It could be that he's a little suspicious about his sons and what they're up to. You remember that Joseph had brought this bad report of the brothers back in verse 2, and so he could be wondering if they are 
doing whatever they were doing again. And he wants to know what's going on. Whatever his motivation, he sends Joseph to check things out, which is an extremely naive and foolish thing to do for Jacob. Uh, Jacob, he should have some sort of a pulse on what's going on in his family, right? And he should know how much these brothers hate Joseph. And, and what, he should have some sort of thought about, you know, what, what is this going to accomplish? What's it going to accomplish for me to send the son that I love so much and that his brothers hate so much into the middle of nowhere to tell, to see exactly what's going on, to sort of spy on them? It's just going to make matters worse. But he calls Joseph to go and to, to check on things. And we begin to, in the narrative, start to see the integrity and the, the strong character of, of Joseph. His reply to his father is just very simple. It's, here I am. It's, a, it's short and it's, it's very obedient. If he wondered about the wisdom about doing this, he never said anything. There could be some pride in his actions. I'll just go and I'm going to see what's going on with my brothers. It could be there. Um, but he also just simply does what his father tells him to do. So as we think about his integrity, we see his obedience, Joseph's obedience. His obedience is not half-hearted. You know, we've all been sent on tasks that we didn't really want to do, or we've, um, and we all kind of look for ways to get out of them if we can. You know, maybe you're supposed to meet someone at 1 o'clock. You don't really want to have the meeting. You don't really want to meet with that person for whatever reason. And so you go, and it's 1 o'clock, and you're there for five minutes. You say, well, I guess they're not showing up. And you quickly get up and try to run out before they show up five minutes late, only to probably meet them in the parking lot or something like that, right? But Joseph could make an excuse if he wants to. He gets to Shechem. His brothers are nowhere to be found. He's wandering in the fields. may indicate some of his immaturity or his um, naivete, but it, it also shows that he's, just not, he's not going to give up. He wants to figure out where they're at. He wants to accomplish the task that his father has given him. And so we see his persistence. He's obedient, and he is persistent. He's seeking for his brothers. A man finds him, and through their conversation, Joseph learns that his brothers have moved on from Shechem to Dothan, about 50 miles north, and undeterred, Joseph is obedient, he's persistent, he goes to Dothan. I'm challenged by Joseph's integrity. Not here, not only here, but throughout the passage, we will be challenged by it. His unflinching obedience to a difficult task, his persistence in that task, even in the face of difficulty, the threat of a poor reception. He knows what his brothers think about him. I think a lesser man gives up, but not Joseph. He still has a lot to learn, though. He's still very young, and we know that he's going to face a lot of difficulties in the coming days. And so maybe one of our questions might be, as we look at him as a, as a man of integrity, a man of obedience and persistence, will he stay that way? Will he continue to be obedient and persistent? Will he begin to grow, will he begin well and then sort of grow bitter because of the trials that he faces? That He wouldn't be the first person that that happens to. They start well and then as life gets harder and harder, they get bitter and more bitter and they just sort of reject the ways of God. What will happen with Joseph? I, I, like I said, I think the integrity of Joseph is going to continue to confront and challenge us. And here it's this call to obedience and persistence. And what's interesting is Joseph's obedience and persistence is set in stark contrast to the wickedness of the brothers. That's the next thing we see is the wickedness of these brothers. It's most of, for the remainder of the passage, this is what we see, this downward spiral that we talked about and how they are opposed to Joseph. 
we see some various motivations for why they're opposed um, to Joseph and, and also why people are opposed to God's people and to God's ways. There's kind of an ominous feel, I think, in verses um, 12 through, through 14 with this whole, uh, with Shechem. Shechem mentioned, is mentioned three times. Now, Shechem isn't always a bad place. There's some good things that happen in Shechem. But in the immediate context, not much good has happened in Shechem, right? This is the place of violence. It's a place of opposition. It's a place of halfway obedience. And the end of verse 14 just sort of seems to indicate this. It says, so he went, so he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it just seems like he's, he's from this safe valley where he's near his father and he's sent to Shechem, this place where violence and hatred had been. It's, he's probably not going to be very welcome in that place. And he's getting further and further away from his father. What's going to happen here? The scene in 18 is very vivid, isn't it? They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. The brothers look up, and they see Joseph. And he's sort of he's coming from afar. How did they know it was Joseph? Probably because he's wearing that robe. That stinking robe. That robe that is always inciting them to jealousy. Reminds them of how much they hate him. Reminds them of the dreams Joseph is probably relieved. He's probably elated. He's he's found his brothers. You know, maybe you see him away in the distance and he kind of waves his arm at his at his brothers and he picks up his pace a little bit. But they are in no way glad to see Joseph. Verse 18 summarizes the conversation um, that they conspired against him to kill him. And then in verses 19 through 22, we sort of get the expansion of what exactly they said. And as we think about that, as we think about the wickedness of these brothers, I just want to mention four characteristics of their wickedness. The first is that they were prideful. They were prideful. Their desire to kill Joseph stems directly from their jealousy and their pride with regard to his dreams. So they see Joseph, and that's all they can think about is his dreams and how they can snuff out all those dreams. That's how they begin their conversation, right? Here comes who? This dreamer. And how does it end? Then we will see what will come of his dreams. They're jealous of their father's favor. They refuse to consider the fact that they might bow down before their brother. And so they're trying to kill him and his dreams. So they hatch a plan. It's simple. It's barbaric. They say, we'll kill him, throw him in a pit, and then we'll lie to dad and say that a wild animal killed him. That's the plan. I think opposition to God's people and God's ways is often due to pride. People might hear the message of the gospel. They might hear us speak about Jesus as the only way to salvation, of the need to bow the knee to Jesus as Savior, of the call to renounce any goodness that we might have. And they refuse to accept that that's true, to refuse to accept that there's any there's no goodness in them, to refuse to accept that Jesus is, is the only way. Maybe they see us proclaiming the message of salvation and they assume that we're doing it in some sort of pride. They view us like Joseph. Oh, here's this dreamer. Here's this this Christian. And maybe sometimes we do. Maybe sometimes we speak of salvation as some sort of mystery that we've solved rather than a, a gift that we have been given. But there's no place for pride in the gospel. Every knee bows to Jesus as Savior and Lord. No one is a child of God because of something in themselves. Everybody who comes must renounce pride. 
And sometimes the opposition to God and his people is because of an unwillingness to renounce pride. The message of the gospel can be offensive. And for some people it's so offensive that they will actually do what these brothers said. They will kill someone rather than listen to it. The pride of these brothers keeps them from seeing God's hand on their brother, from seeing God's ways, so they reject him and they want to kill him. So we see their wickedness and their pride. Secondly, we see it in the fact that they were selfish. They were selfish. So they have this conversation about you know the plan, and then Reuben steps in between Joseph and his brothers in verse 21, and what's he say? Let's not kill him. Now there's no appeal to morality. He doesn't say, you guys are acting terrible. You're acting out of anger. You're acting out of pride. In fact, he seems to say, let's not actually kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. And then he'll die. So it's sort of, you know, equivocating. It's sort of this, let's get out of it. This is the twisted way that we think when we think about sin. Well, I'm not going to kill him. I'm just going to throw him in a pit. I, I think Reuben, I, I want to say that Reuben is selfish here. and I, Because I think it runs a little bit deeper. He wants to use Joseph as sort of this pawn for his own advancement in the, the family. You remember back in chapter 35, that little verse about Reuben? What did it say? It said that Reuben had slept with his father's concubine and that Jacob heard about it. So Reuben had sinned greatly against his, his father and had brought about his father's displeasure. So now, here it is. It's the golden opportunity to be restored to favor with his father. We'll throw him in the pit, then I'll come back later. I'll rescue him. I'll be the hero, and Dad will love me again, and he'll forget about this whole thing that I did a while ago. You you can see the the selfishness of his heart exposed in verses 29 and 30 when he comes back and Joseph's not in the pit. He tears his clothes, but it doesn't seem to be because his brother's gone. Rather, as the firstborn, he knows that, that the responsibility for this is going to fall largely on him. And not only that, but but his plan has now failed. So he grieves. But does he grieve for Joseph? What are his words? The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? He's not really concerned about Joseph. He's concerned about himself. You can see the selfishness of all of them in, in verse 25. They rip off Joseph's coat. They throw him in a pit. And then what do they do? Let's eat. They sit down and they have a meal together. They are so... Selfish, they are so oblivious to his pain. We're told later in the narrative that that Joseph is crying out. So if you can imagine that picture, they're sitting by this pit. Their brother is pleading for mercy. And they're just having a meal together. But the selfishness of Reuben, the selfishness of the whole group, is kind of trumped by the selfishness of Judah. He sees this caravan passing. It's got all these wonderful goods on it. People have money from trading. And instead of seeing the red of murder, what does he see? He sees the green of greed. Judah rightly says that they should not kill Joseph because why? He's their brother. He's he's their blood. But then he says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him so that we can get some money. It's amazing to think about the wickedness of those who oppose God. And, and this is in our own hearts as well, is that, that it shows up often, not necessarily in, in outright 
hatred and, and pride, but sometimes it shows up in selfishness. A selfishness that seeks personal interest in the name of, of righteousness. Those who pretend to care about God's will and, and His ways, but they only do it so they can get favor for themselves, so they can get money for their pockets. Wolves in sheep's clothing. People who are just concerned about their own self-interest. This is the wickedness of the brothers. We see that they were prideful. They were selfish. Third, they were deceptive. They were deceptive. With Joseph gone, they, they weave a story to deceive their father. They kill this goat. They dip Joseph's coat into the blood. And then just think about how heartless it is. They, they take this coat and they say, is this your son's robe? They know it's Joseph's robe. And so they're, they're playing their father. Joseph then fills out the story. He says, a wild beast must have devoured him. There's some strange irony here, isn't there? Jacob, how is he deceived here? By a goat and a coat. This is how he deceived his own father, isn't it? That they killed those two young goats and then he put on his brother's coat so that he would smell like his brother. I think it tells us that, that Jacob is no longer the focus of the narrative, but God still has some things that he wants to teach Jacob. And he's helping him continue to see his own sin. The brothers, they're prideful, they're jealous, they're selfish, they're deceptive, and then finally they're, they're totally misguided. They're misguided. What do they, what do they want? You know? What are they, what are they trying to gain from all of this? It's obvious that they want to kill Joseph, but not just Joseph. They want to kill Joseph's dreams. And Reuben and maybe some of the others, they want to, to regain favor. Maybe if Joseph is gone, who their father loves so much, then, then he'll have more love for us. But all they do is destroy their father. I mean, he mourns for his son. He refuses to be comforted by any of his sons and daughters. And another sorrow is added to Jacob's life. Remember, he describes his life as being filled with evil. And just another thing to add to it. I just imagine the conversation through the years, 20-some years, that this lie kept going. I mean, I think Jacob would have been filled with guilt. Why did I send him? Why did I send him to Shechem? I, I wish I would have never told him to go and, and check on you guys. And imagine as he's filled with, with grief and they're sitting around the table and he, a memory of Joseph comes to mind and he brings it up and he just says, oh, I wish I would have never sent him out to find you guys. And they all sort of look at each other. They know exactly what they did. Imagine the anguish that they caused to their father, the guilt that their father feels. And it's not his guilt to bear, it's their guilt to bear. Of course, we know their sin's going to find them out. They didn't gain the favor of their father. And most amazingly, they didn't kill Joseph's dreams, did they? God is going to use this. They, they try to destroy Joseph's future, but in trying to destroy it, what do they do? They set it into motion. God is going to use what they did to bring it about. And it's all in this wonderful word, my favorite word in the passage, in verse 36. Meanwhile, it's like the old westerns, right? So there's a scene of sort of chaos, 
and then the narrator comes on. I guess in the old silent movies it would show up on the screen and it would say, meanwhile, back at the ranch, and then they'd shift back to this scene where something's going on, you know, the good guys are getting together and everything is going to change. And, and having seen the, the integrity of Joseph and the wickedness of the brothers, this, world me, this word meanwhile, just verse 36, shows us the sovereignty of God. And that's the big theme, I think, through this passage, through the whole narrative of Joseph, is the sovereignty of God. The brothers, you can see them, they're deceiving their father. You can see that whole scene, deceiving their father, and, and they all assume that Joseph's dreams are dead. And Jacob is mourning, assuming that he will never see his son again. And while that's all happening, Joseph is arriving in Egypt into the home of a high official in the service of Pharaoh. I think meanwhile marks this this whole passage. God is at work in all these little details in Joseph's life. He's using all this evil for the greater good. Just think about this scene. Joseph wandering a field in a field in Shechem looking for his brothers. And some guy just walks up to him. This guy comes up and he says... What are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my brothers. Have you seen him? And this random guy knows who his brothers are. Not only does he know who his brothers are, he knows where they're at. Yeah, I overheard him say they're going to Dothan. What are the chances? It's the sovereignty of God to lead Joseph where? Into his brother's hands. Reuben, remember, he intervenes for these selfish reasons. But in doing so, he spares Joseph's life. Joseph's life is spared because of the evil, selfish actions of of Reuben. Then as they're sitting there, a caravan passes just because that's what needed to happen. And God leads this caravan to pass. And and Judah gets this idea and brings it up to his brothers, all of his brothers except who? Reuben. Where is Reuben? I don't know. But he's not there. He's not there because if Reuben had been there, he would have stopped this whole thing from happening. In God's sovereignty, Reuben is not there. Joseph is picked up by this caravan, and he's taken to the exact place where God wants him. Not just Egypt, but to Potiphar's house. And why Potiphar's house? So he can get thrown in jail. (laughs) That's God's sovereignty. This downward spiral of hatred for God's people For Joseph does nothing to thwart God's plans. He takes all this evil that's done to Joseph and he turns it for good. And is it just for Joseph? No. It's for every child of God. What about us? How do these truths shape us? Let me give you three character traits. I think that looking at the life of Joseph that that we should be building into ourselves. The first is compassion for those who oppose God and his people. Compassion for those who oppose God and his people. This may sound strange, but I think as wicked as they are, our hearts should pity these brothers. They're opposing God's people. They're opposing God's plan. And we can have pity in part because apart from God's grace, we do the same thing. We are enemies of God and we oppose him. But also because we see that as they're trying to find peace... They're trying to find happiness. They're trying to find the love of their father. They're trying to find all of these these things. In the midst of doing that, what are they doing? They're just creating more pain in their lives. They think this is the right thing to do, but they don't know what they're doing. They are blind to it. They think that fighting against God's work in the world, fighting against Joseph's dreams, that that's going to make them happy, that that's going to bring fulfillment. But it just brings guilt. It just brings pain to them and everyone around them. 
And we can look at others and, and see that, that, that those who oppose God, this is exactly what happens. They think that they're finding, gonna find satisfaction and joy in opposing God. But it just brings more pain. Ultimately, all of their efforts are fruitless because God's purposes will be established. I think we should have compassion for those who fight against God's plans and purposes in this world and God's people. The second thing is carefulness. Carefulness in assuming the future. Carefulness in assuming the future. I think everyone assumes they know what is happening. And everyone is wrong. (laughs) The brothers, they are 100% positive that they have crushed all of Joseph's dreams. We will never bow down to him. Done with that. Jacob is positive he will never see his son again until he is in Sheol with him. And Joseph, though we don't know, probably assumes that he's never going to see his family again, let alone that they would bow down to him. And every single one of them is dead wrong. The dreams will come true. Jacob will see his son again. And Joseph's, the the will that God has for Joseph is going to come about. Let's not be so prideful as to think that we know what God is doing, even when it seems crystal clear. In our lives, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our city, in our country, in our world. There are things going on, and it looks, we know, I know exactly how this is going to go. I know exactly what God is doing. And we have no clue what he's doing. There's times when we think things are dead. But we shouldn't be surprised if he's the, the God of the resurrection, that, that dreams and plans and desires that we thought were long gone, that they suddenly come back to life. Of course, we all know, too, that whatever happens in this life, God is bringing all things towards an ultimate end, towards the restoration of all things. So whether in this lifetime or not, all will be made well. So don't assume that you know everything that God's doing. Because very often when we do that, we are dead wrong. And then the third thing is continued faithfulness in the midst of opposition and pain. So compassion towards those who oppose God and his ways, carefulness in assuming, the fu- in assuming the future, and continued faithfulness in the midst of opposition and pain. We know the rest of Joseph's story, don't we? We know what God is going to do. And so we can sort of say to Joseph, yes, Joseph, this is terrible, but, but, but stay faithful. I mean, God, God's doing things. He's working things in ways that you can't even imagine even in the pain even in all this hatred even in all this wickedness against you god is god is doing something joseph and i think joseph wants to speak back to us and say the exact same thing right doesn't his story say to us stay faithful god god is leading you and god is is leading you into this pain god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life a plan that includes opposition and hatred and loneliness and despair. That's his wonderful plan. We may not always be comfortable, but we are always becoming more like Christ. I think Paul joins Joseph. He tells us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. God's always working. He's doing something. Nothing can thwart God's plans. He's working for our good and our joy. Second Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God's doing something. He's working something. I thought about a guy named Hugh Latimer this week. He was a a pastor in England under the reign of, of Queen Mary. He was a martyr in England. And he was burned at the stake for what he believed and for opposing the church of the day because of his belief in what the Bible said. And he was there in front of this crowd. Everyone's gathered. And, and he and his friend, Nicholas Ridley, were getting ready to be burnt at the stake for what they believed. And, and right before they're burnt, it's said that Hugh Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. What a vision to say, you know what? We're going to get set on fire. And our martyrdom is going to accomplish something so much greater than we could ever imagine. The greatest pain that we could ever face probably is going to accomplish something amazing. What a testimony of continued faithfulness. Faithfulness when we wear the coat of favor and faithfulness when it's ripped off our back and we're thrown into some pit. Faithfulness through it all, knowing that the downward spiral of hatred for God's people can never thwart God's plans. I think in difficulty and in, in, in opposition from God's people, I just want us to think about this one word that we can write over it all. It's that word in verse 36, right? Meanwhile. Meanwhile, God, God's, God's doing something. When others mock and, and persecute us, meanwhile, God's, God's doing something. When we face opposition from without the church, from within the church, Meanwhile, God's doing something. When we face disease and difficulty, they come into our lives. When sorrow and pain and heartache fill us, when it seems that whatever God had planned for us has now been been crushed, we can just sort of write over it all. Meanwhile, meanwhile, God is at work for his glory and for our good. I got in the car this morning and I turned the key and it didn't start. (laughs) It's a dead battery. No big deal. I got a jump from my wife's car. But in the midst of that, I was so thankful that having gone through this passage, I turned the key and it didn't start. And you know what I thought? Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, God's doing something. Even in this, this difficulty, this simple thing, God's working something. Wouldn't that be great if that just becomes a part of our vocabulary? That, that when we have conversations and, and something's going on, we can just sort of say, well, meanwhile... God's doing something. I, I may not know exactly what he's doing. I may never know. I may not know until I get to heaven, but he is working. It's a, it's, it's a word that we can give to ourselves. So when your car doesn't start, just, just say that. Or when, or when you get a diagnosis that you just don't know what to do with it, or, or when death comes into your family, or heartache, or, or pain, we just sort of say, I know that, that no opposition can ultimately harm me because God's plans will never be thwarted. He is working something. He's doing something in me. He's making me more like Christ. He's accomplishing his greater glory, and that's, that's what I want. So I'll just say, meanwhile, God's, God's doing something, even when I don't understand it. Of course, the greatest meanwhile is the life of Jesus, isn't it? The greatest example of how God can use pain and Heartache and evil to accomplish his greater purposes is represented in what we're going to take this morning through the bread and the cup. We come to the table, we find this example that's so much greater than Joseph, isn't it? 
Joseph is just the shadow that points to Jesus. Jesus is sent by his father on this difficult task of coming to his own people, coming to his brothers and his sisters. And he comes to his own people. And what do they do to him? They completely reject him right from the very beginning. And he persists in pursuing them and loving them and serving them. And what is he? He's despised and rejected. He's mocked and he's beaten. He's falsely convicted. He's brutally killed. We're reminded that however obedient Joseph was and whatever integrity we find in our own lives, only Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father. It's only the life of Christ that is filled with perfect integrity. And so it's only Jesus who can save us from our sin. It's only Jesus who can give us his righteousness. It's only Jesus who could die for the sins of the world because he had no sin of his own to, to pay for. We look at Joseph, and Joseph is spared from death by the hands of his brothers. But Jesus, Jesus is forsaken by all, and he's killed by those he had come to save. The Pharisees were so jealous of him. They were unwilling to entertain any thought of bowing their knee to him. That dream would never come true. We will never bow down to a carpenter from Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah. Others are selfish. They, they think that the true Messiah will come to conquer and, and to rule, not to serve others and to give his life. And so Judas sells his allegiance just like Judah for some silver. He couldn't reign beside Jesus, so at least he'll get some money out of the whole thing. But in all of this opposition, everyone is completely misguided. His opponents think that by killing him and throwing him into a pit, that they will keep his claims of being the savior of the world. They'll keep that from coming true. We'll snuff it out. Meanwhile, God is working salvation through their very act. Their act of killing him is what enthrones him. The death of Jesus stands as, as the great witness to the truth that the downward spiral of hatred for God's people, for God himself, can never thwart what God's plans are. He takes the greatest evil ever in the entire world and he turns it for the salvation of every person who would repent of their disobedience, of their wickedness and jealousy and selfishness and deception and misguided plans. If we would put our faith in him, in his life and his death and his resurrection, then we can know salvation. I think over all human history, the cross stands as the greatest meanwhile that there ever was. And so it's good. It's good to pause and to remember in this meal what Christ has done. When everything seemed lost, he was saving us all.